from Lawson Media, this is Building a Unicorn, the show about what it takes to build a big global business. I'm Christopher Lawson. These days, a large amount of retail has moved online. You can buy almost anything you want at the touch of a button and then have it delivered to you wherever you are. But there are some industries which have in many countries struggled to convert to the digital revolution, and that has opened up a market for new entrepreneurs to dominate. One such company is VinoMofo, a wine delivery startup by Andre Eichmeier and Justin Dry. VinoMofo has taken the Australian wine industry by storm, with their no BS approach to what was always seen as a pretty snobby industry. They now operate in Australia, New Zealand and Singapore with plans for further global expansion. Now the road to success is usually never easy, but for VinoMofo CEO Justin Dry, this love of entrepreneurship was really in his blood. My father was an entrepreneur, had kind of ups and downs, as most entrepreneurs have, um, some pretty major and challenging downs. So I saw the I saw the highs and the lows of my chosen path. What did he do as an entrepreneur? Uh, so he, oh, lots of different things. So um, he originally started insurance. He owned some gyms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he owned uh, some other outlets, uh, property. He did for some while. He did finance. He did lots of different things over the time. But one of those moves. Uh, quite early was into the kind of health and gym space. That didn't work. It's important to mention here that back in the late 80s and early 90s, Australia was in a recession. At the time, the official interest rate set by the Reserve Bank of Australia was as high as 17.5%, meaning the rate people were actually paying at the bank was often well above that. And this forced many people into bankruptcy, my family included. And Justin's family? Well, they struggled too. I think they hit those kind of numbers. Can you mm. can you even imagine interest rates at twenty percent? Crazy. They're now what, like three or four percent. Exactly. So <laughs> I think he probably over leveraged himself, went into an industry that then got very tough when the market crashed and interest rates were high and no one had any money. Uh, so I think I saw the challenges around that. You know, we lost a house, we lost everything. Um, went from having you know nice cars, decent house, to being asked to leave and losing everything and going into rentals and shitty cars and all the all the things that happen yeah. when you have no money. And so I think seeing that um, was interesting, but also seeing the optimism around an entrepreneur and you know may sometimes blindly um, and and other times well founded. But uh, that was so I, I kind of saw I saw an interesting ride. And but the thing that we always talked about was business and ideas. So that kind of got me interested. I started my first business when I was 10. Um, right, what was that? It was something very simple. It was like car washing and lawn mowing kind of business. I did the rounds, door knocked on people's doors and <laughs> probably annoyed them and asked them to clean their cars, you know, for four or five bucks. Uh, was know. it successful? It actually was. Um, <laughs> it, it, I, I did remarkably well. When I, my, for my first business, I actually employed uh, my first employee when I was 10 and a half. And, um, <laughs> Who it, was that? It, it was my cousin, Ben. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he'll be forever known as Lazy Ben um, because he was more interested in going to the shops with our money and eating lollies and actually doing the work. So he was also the first one I had to fire. <laughs> but uh, we, we're still close. So I got married last year and he came to the wedding. So you Congratulations. Know, thank you. But you know, there's no hard feelings there. I don't even think he remembers, to be honest. <laughs> but like any true entrepreneur, Justin wasn't going to stop at one successful lawn mowing business. So when he was 14, he made the logical next step moving into something a little more seasonal. I was uh, selling Christmas trees, buying directly from a Christmas tree farm and selling them before Christmas. Before that was a thing, before other people were doing it. Right, so people would bypass going to the Christmas tree farm themselves and then just come to you. Yeah, so I would would set up, I asked... um, uh, it was just around the corner from my house where I grew up. Uh, there was a petrol station that was on like the um, corner of like five main roads coming in together. Right. So like heaps of traffic. And I asked if I could set up on the front lawn of the service station um, with, you know, hand-drawn signs um, and the Christmas trees laid out <laughs> three or four weeks before Christmas. So when people were driving wow. past, they're like, oh, I'll grab a Christmas tree. And, uh, you know, if they could fit it. And uh, it, I did, again, remarkably well early. Hmm. And I sold out on the first time I did it, I sold out out within about three hours it was like a like I was doing it for a three-day sale over the weekend and I, I think the first time I convinced my dad to drive me up to the Christmas tree farm front up the money to buy you know 15 Christmas trees um, and drive me down put me there and I did hand-drawn signs for you know Christmas trees for you know 15 yeah. bucks or whatever it was and I sold out in like three hours 
Wow. And I was like, oh, my God, this is easy. Um, so I went to the back then, the phone that you actually have to spin around to dial. And, uh, called <laughs> I don't the, remember those. <laughs> I called the Christmas tree farm and I was like, how many Christmas trees do you have left? And they're like, oh, uh, 45. And I was like, if you drop them down to me today, I'll take them all. And the guy's like, okay, done. So, <laughs> And um, you should have seen these Christmas trees at Rockdark because – I should have thought about this and looked at my stock before I bought it, but they were like some of these Christmas trees because they're the 45 last Christmas trees available at this Christmas tree farm. So they're the 45 <laughs> they're the ones that everyone had passed over. <laughs> <laughs> they're the like skinny ones with like two branches. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. They had like two little bits of green on a really skinny branch. Um, and so, wow. but I got stuck with them. So I ended up selling about half them and, I, and all my profit from that first venture into the Christmas tree market. Uh, was Christmas trees. I, I made no money, but I, 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 I couldn't bring myself to uh, drop the uh, Christmas trees uh, off anywhere because it would cost me money to drop them. Right. And so I was like, I, I can't I can't bear to lose any money. Sure. So here I am getting dad to hire the truck again to drop them back to our place. It was all my profit. And I was, <laughs> I was driving back with these Christmas trees and he's like, what are we going to do with them? And I said, oh, I, I don't want to dump them because it would cost money. Uh, and he's like, oh, okay. Um well, we'll take one. I was like, oh, cool, that'll be 20 bucks. And he was like, um, Justin, I have driven up to the Christmas tree farm. I have hired a truck. I fronted all your cash. <laughs> I think I get a Christmas tree. And I was like, okay, bugger. Um, and so we gave, I gave him a Christmas tree. So I had like 12, wow. 12, I think, left or 13 left. And they ended up staying down the side of our house for two years turning brown dying slowly and then you know reduced down to you know <laughs> nothing <laughs> I bet um, your parents loved that yeah no they loved it and it was for me whenever I come home from school you enter into the front gate I remember this this scene so well go front gate off this main street Look to my right, and there's the 13 Christmas trees slowly dying for two years. <laughs> and a really good reminder to look at the stock before you buy it. Justin grew up in Adelaide in South Australia, about an hour south from the Barossa Valley, arguably the wine capital of Australia. And as Justin discovered, his ancestors had planted some of the first vines in the region, some of which are 140 years old. So my ancestors plundered some of those, and um, so it's in the DNA. I didn't know so much when I was younger about that, but you know, wine had always been a thing in our family. My dad and mum obviously drank wine, and they were, you know, very social, and all their friends and you know, family drank it. So it was always around, but it was only when I was about fifteen or sixteen that two of my uncles, um, one in particular, Uncle Peter, um, he's a viticulturist, so he's a, the wine science of growing grapes. And I'd go to these family functions, and they'd line up like three or four glasses of wine not telling me what the you know brand variety region whatever was and they get me to blind taste them and tell them what they were and I was like I don't even drink like (laughs) this is way too early for me to be doing this how old are you then like like 15 oh wow yeah 15 (laughs) you know I think they were asking me to spit it out or take little sips Um, they would try and get me to pick them like complete blind tasting and and i'll be like i don't even drink like how the hell am i supposed to do this and they're like yeah we'll guide you through it and they'll be like we'll tell you what this variety smells like tastes like feels like in the mouth what this region is known for you know all those things around you know what that vintage was like and what that would mean to the wine so they were kind of guiding me through it and i loved this game that i was playing and i, I was i was okay at it too justin developed this deep love of wine he learned about the history of the industry and the role his ancestors played in the space and he became more and more involved. So as he finished school, his friends were spending all their cash on beer and other party drinks. And Justin, well, he was buying expensive bottles of wine and then writing tasting notes to compare his own results to some of the critics. If uh, James Halliday, which is a famous wine critic in Australia, had written, you know, like black currants and, you know, raspberry notes in this wine, um, I would do the blind tasting. I'd write my notes and then I'd look it up. And, and if we had the same thing, I'd be like, fuck yes. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, my God, I'm good. Um, and, I, and I did that. And so I got super wine nerdy for my 18th birthday instead of having like a beer keg party and a whole bunch of people over. I asked my parents if they'd put all that money into one bottle of wine. And I bought my first like super expensive wine. How much did that cost? It was maybe 300 bucks or okay. something, two or $300 back then. That's a lot for like an 18-year-old. Yeah, yeah, well, that was the entire budget, I think, back then of the whole party and everything around it. And sure. so I just spent it on a nice bottle of wine because I wanted to try a really expensive <laughs> bottle of wine. And mum cooked dinner. We sat around family um, dining table, um, had a really nice meal. 
opened the bottle of wine, slowly decanted it over like many hours, kept checking it, like, you know, going back every 30 minutes to smell it to eventually it was ready. And, um, and the, the evolution of that wine in the glass and the experience I had just made me fall completely in love with it again. By this time, Justin was entering university and he decided to study marketing. But he was really wanting to work in the wine industry. So he was focused on how you market wine. And then he studied chemistry so he could understand the science behind actually making the wine. Then once he finished, he decided to go all in. I thought wine was it. And uh, I studied it, finished that degree, went and worked in the wine industry, uh, holding tastings for people, representing brands, worked in wine shops, um, felt completely in love with it, um, did vintages at wineries where you know, you'd go and make the wine or pick the grapes or both. Um, so yes, I was in. I was all in. And then when I was about 22, I was like, oh, I'm not sure anymore. Um, I'm not sure if this is a, a passion or a profession. And so I decided that I'd give something else a go. So I went and studied financial markets, became a stockbroker. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a lot different yeah. from uh, winemaking. Yeah, yeah, it is. But I'd always been interested in business and finance and econ- economics was always my strong kind of suit at school. Mathematics was that kind of thing. So uh, I was always fascinated by business and entrepreneurial um, you know, endeavors. And, and so it, it kind of made sense to me. Sure. So it was either wine or business. And, um, and you know, stockbroker was very business focused and understood that market so I was like yep cool that sounds good studied it uh, went and worked as a stockbroker for um, a short period and that was that was like late 90s and that was like the tech boom right. so everything I touched turned to gold all my right. friends thought I was a bloody genius <laughs> um, not so much in early 2000s when I went the other way sure. which was the tech crash and yes. so I, I kind of rode that wave and got out just as it was going down um, so I made a little bit of money After the dot-com crash, Justin decided that spending all of his time staring at computer screens, watching stock prices move up and down, just wasn't that interesting. He had some friends that got into property, and so he decided to use the money he'd made to do his own development on the South Australian coast. And he made some money out of it. So he took that money, then doubled down and made some more money. And by his late 20s, he was doing pretty well. But then he made what he calls the worst mistake of his life. I actually uh, went guarantor for um, someone I cared about deeply, mm-hmm. um, stupidly, probably is the worst mistake I've ever made. And uh, I, I went against my gut and I went against my head and I went with my heart to kind mm-hmm. of protect um, someone uh, that was in trouble. And I was going to set it up in a way where it was going to be fine, even if it didn't work. And, um, and I was going to put it under a company that I had that had some assets in it, you know, some properties through the property company. And unfortunately, when the docs came out that day, (laughs) when I went to sign, my personal name was on most of it. So when the other thing went down, it kind of took me with it. And from someone who had way too much money, way too young, I went to having very little money <laughs> right? At the, uh, very quickly. And yeah. so, you know, lost everything, lost all the houses, the cars, all the assets, all the fun stuff and went through some really challenging years and it um, had a huge impact on my life. But, you know, as they say, um, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and you learn all those lessons and I've, and I've probably, I am a far better um, business person, entrepreneur, because I went through awful stuff. And I think most people that have gone through something similar would say the same. At the time, it doesn't feel like that. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Time- That's hard for like for, for someone in their late 20s to, mm. you know, feel like they've, they've made a success of themselves and then have that sort of like taken away from them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, very challenging. And I started living a life that um, wasn't amazing. You know, like I started partying too hard, not taking care of myself, not exercising, drinking too much, all the things that you do to escape the reality of what was going on. And these things that when that happens, um, it's not a quick thing. You know, it takes years for things to go wrong and the repercussions of that fully be known. Sure. And uh, And so it's a really challenging, awful period and you're just trying to keep your head above water um, through that, you know, emotionally. And so escapism comes a thing. Mm. <laughs> and so I did that and uh, did that for a while until I think the last the, the last kind of moment, the moment that I was like, all right, this is enough, Justin, you know, pick yourself up, let's go. 
was um, was the day I was saying goodbye to my house. And the house had always been a thing because, you know, growing up and you lose your house mm. <laughs> as a kid and then you're not expecting to do that as an adult. Yeah, um, sure. So the, the house was something that meant a lot to me. So when I made some money, that was the first kind of thing, you know, I need to have a house. So I did that and then I was always going to protect it. Um, and unfortunately, it kind of unraveled. But uh, you know, that day that I um, say goodbye to the house, which is the last thing, you know, the cars are gone, all the other houses, all the other properties, uh, all the cash <laughs> and gone. And this is the last thing. And um, it had been sold. And I was saying goodbye to the house. I was walking through it and it was quite an emotional kind of experience. And mm. I got to the final room and it was my bedroom just before I left um, left the house. And uh, I had a scooter. That was all I had left, you know. It was waiting out the front for me to ride on out. <laughs> and so I got to the main bedroom and um, it was empty and I was, you know, a little bit kind of upset and saying goodbye. And I, when I was standing in the room, there was a wardrobe and the wardrobe door was open and there was a mirror on it. And it just triggered and I saw myself. It wasn't a pretty look. <laughs> and I saw myself and I was like, uh, it reminded me of this um, exercise that I had learned doing, um, I think it was a Tony Robbins course, you know. Okay. Or I'd, I'd listened to so many kind of um, self-help, personal development type kind of tapes, CDs, reading lots of books. That's what I always did that. So whether it was Tony Robbins or another person similar to that, you know, and take what you will from him. Some of it's great. Some of it I don't really gel with. But there was one exercise uh, that I did and it was looking in a mirror and you imagine yourself living the same life for, you know, one, three, five, ten, and 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so you're standing in front of the mirror and I'm looking at myself and it's not looking great. You know, I've had, you know, two years of, you know, not looking after myself. And so one year um, and you imagine yourself in one year doing the same life and you start Mm -hmm. kind of your shoulders start coming forward, you start getting smaller, you start feeling awful um, and start to struggle to look at yourself. But you keep looking at yourself, then you do three and it doesn't get any better from there. (laughs) It gets, and by, you know, five and 10 and 15 and 20, you are a shell. You're really small. You're feeling awful. It feels gross. And you imagine where you are, who you are, how you feel, the life around you, the people around you when you continue to live that way. Mm. And then you go, oh God, that's that's enough. Then you reverse and come back to the current day. And then you imagine one, three, five, 10, 15, 20 years ahead if you change your life and do the things that you should do and you know, look after yourself and start again and get positive and surround yourself with good people and those types of things. And so I did that, and, you know, one year you're like, yes. And then three <laughs> years like, oh, I'm going to kill it. And then, you know, five and 10, your shoulders are back, your chest is up and you're super right. positive. And so I'm building myself up and uh and then there's and so by 20 i'm like yes i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it again and get super positive i was super Mm. pumped as i'm leaving this house (laughs) i'm like walking out going yes let's take on the world and uh another another exercise that i did at the same time was um was pretend you're wearing a superman cape Okay. You, you walk differently it's hard mm. and it sounds silly when you're saying on, <laughs> on radio or podcast and, but if you imagine you're walking with a cape behind you like a Superman cape you change, your body language changes sure. and you, you know the chest is up shoulders are back right. and, and you start feeling very powerful so it was just those two things doing that exercise and pretending I'm wearing a Superman cape I am storming out of this house with no assets onto a scooter that's worth so little in shorts and a t-shirt with no assets no money <laughs> going yes oh, wow. <laughs> like, super positive <laughs> I jump on this scooter and um, I'm like, yep, take off, um, driving to the office with this um, business that I had, which was making no money and scootering along, pull up at traffic lights and I Mm. stop and um, this other car pulls up beside me and it's got a family inside it and like uh, a husband, wife and a child and... um, I pull up at the lights, they pull up, it starts raining. So I'm in shorts and a t-shirt and thongs on my scooter, <laughs> having said goodbye to everything, going towards nothing with nothing in my wow. pocket. And it starts raining. I'm like, are you bloody serious? Uh, and then this car that's pulled up, the kid in the back of the car looks at me and points at the parents. Like, it points at me and says something to the parents. Right. And I'm like, this must be my lowest point. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, all right, from here on in, it's all good. And so that was the kind of turning point in my life. It's at this point that Justin starts his journey into what would eventually become Vino Mofo. And right after this break we'll find out what it takes to go from losing everything to running a fast-growing startup. This is Building a Unicorn. I'm Christopher Lawson.
Before the break, we were speaking with the CEO and co-founder of VinoMofo, Justin Dry. Now, Justin had lost his home, all his money, and not long after that, his girlfriend broke up with him. But that entrepreneurial spirit runs deep in his blood. So around 2006, he decides to make a return to the wine business by starting an online website called Quaff. I decided that I need to get away from Australia and just all this stuff. And so I went traveling through South America backpacking. I met a couple of uh, American travelers and they were using a thing called Facebook, really taking off in the States. Very early years of Facebook. Yeah, Only very, one very, or two years yeah, old. Yeah. yeah, it was very, very, very early. It wasn't, um, wasn't available. It was invite only when I first met them, but they were using it to keep in touch with each other. They were sure. college students from the States and the way that they were kind of, you know, leaving each other and coming back together was through this thing called Facebook and kind of keeping in touch. And because I was traveling with them a bit, they invited me to be part of it. And so I joined and that was how my first kind of introduction. I was like, oh my God, this is kind of cool. Uh, This is interesting. Um, And I think this might be big. I was looking for my next opportunity. What was I going to do? What business was I going to start? What industry was I going to go in? You know, I I really missed wine. Um, I wanted to do something on the internet. And uh, I was playing around with this thing called Facebook. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, what? You know, on, on my long bus rides through South America, I was dreaming of what I could do. And I was like, all right, I want to do wine again. I want to do something on the internet. And this kind of Facebook community building thing um, that is Facebook is um, really interesting. So I was sure. like, what about if I kind of combine them all and I create the Facebook for wine? Um, and that was Quaff. Um, told my brother-in-law about it, Andre, over Christmas mm-hmm. that year, what I was building, um, and he was building something actually surprisingly in the wine space at the same time around customer reviews. And so we hadn't talked about it. He wasn't in the wine space before. I'd done some work in the wine space for about six months, but um, he had gone, decided at the similar timing that he wanted to go into that space too. I came back with these plans for like, you know, the Facebook of wine. Uh, we told each other at Christmas and over a few bottles of wine, decided that we'd go into business together. Okay. <laughs> and that was, the, that was the birth of Quaff. We actually didn't like each other very much back then. And, right. Um, and so I think it took the wine to convince ourselves that that was a good idea. <laughs> That's a hard decision to make if, you, if you're not like, you don't particularly like each other. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, well, it got easier as we'd consume more wine. <laughs> we got excited and then probably wondered what the hell we were doing the next day when we uh, when we woke up, but uh, we thought it was cool at the time and uh, that was a journey of uh, four years before we launched Fino. So that those well, four did, years were super What tough. did your sister think of this? Probably concerned, <laughs> um, to be honest. But she, I think she quite liked the idea of me getting involved with Andre um, in the sense that uh, having two minds on mm-hmm. the business would be a good thing. And, you know, very different people bring different skill sets and she probably saw that as a good thing. But, you know, wow, they had one kid and another kid on the way, I think. And so they were tight. You know, with money, and I was obviously tight with money because of my history. We pivoted the business four times before we got to Vino Mofo. Sure. Each Did one you start was- in the garage. Yeah, started in, in in That's their a proper garage. entrepreneurial yeah, story. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's uh, we started in Adelaide in the garage of uh, Joe, my sister, and Andre's place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just a small little kind of. Um, thing that had been converted to an office. We worked out of there for a couple of years, actually, um, which was nice because we were around the kids and the family, um, which, you know, had its its pros and cons, but uh, it it was nice to be around the family. So Justin and Andre enlisted the help of a friend to build them a website and went about trying to grow this online community. The way they did this was by trying to remove the snobbery that's often associated with wine. The philosophy of the business is like no bow ties and BS around wine. So mm-hmm. like we're super passionate about wine, but um, remove the bow ties and BS. And so you go to small independent kind of liquor stores. And so you'd walk into these stores. Even I was intimidated because there was this old guy with rosy cheeks and like a white shirt and bow tie that got his entire self-worth out of making other people feel small because of his knowledge mm-hmm. around wine. How would you deal with that? Well, I just remember thinking, well, if I feel this way... Imagine how everyone else feels that doesn't have the experience in this space, and that's ridiculous. So mm. that was kind of the driver behind the brand of this no bow ties and BS. Still super passionate about wine, um, mm. but get rid of the wank. Yeah, It's sure. basically where that philosopher came from. So because of that and what we stood for and the way we talked about wine, we gathered like a really great younger audience of wine lovers who mm. discovered us and wanted to talk about wine the way we talked about it, wanted to try the wines that we were tasting and wanted to, you know, review and rate and connect up with other wine lovers um, of a similar kind of demographic. And so we built this great audience and we started to get quite a bit of recognition within the media space 
of that industry um, and we became the kind of like digital wine guys and right. each business we kind of rolled out after that was in the same space and got bigger and better. Quaff started around the same time that Gary Vaynerchuk started Wine Library TV and began his rise to fame. Justin and Andre had built a fairly decent audience, although the site really wasn't making any money. So they ended up going and raising some money from an angel investor and then they got an office. But they still had to figure out how to turn it all into a business. So Justin would go away at Christmas and then come back each year with new ideas on how to monetize their audience. You know, we don't like 30 grand. Um, that first year between two people and that was before expenses. Wow. Like seriously, tight. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. Um, he was, you know, married to my sister. So to make family <laughs> Christmas was very good. Um, and so, that, so when I came, went away for the Christmas, I came back and I was like, oh, I've got this great idea, Andre. I've always wanted to, I was a surfer growing up, so I was like, I've always wanted to buy a combi, travel around Australia, <laughs> surfing, tasting wine. And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) So a couple of years into their journey on Quaff, Justin and Andre started piecing together this idea for a series where they would travel around Australia and taste different types of wine. And because they were the digital wine guys, they wanted to publish it on YouTube. So they eventually bought a combi, hired a videographer, and then travelled around speaking to people in the industry about their wines. Well, we're here in the Hunter Valley, New South Wales. It's actually uh, quite appropriate that our journey begins here because the Hunter Valley is the birthplace of Australian wine. Beautiful as this is, I'm getting thirsty. Let's go and find some really good booze. They called the series Road to Vino, and while the Quaff community liked the content, their videos never really gained much traction on YouTube. But the series did give them the connections they would need to actually start working on a new idea that Justin had on one of these Christmas vacations. The idea that would eventually become Vino Mofo. But that wasn't always the name. In fact, for a long time, it was going to be called Vino Mojo. Vino Mojo. Get your mojo working. That was the original idea. Right. Um, And you went quite a bit down the path of yeah, like, doing, yeah. doing that. So I, I came back after the, the break and was like, you know, I've got this idea. Um, it was a blending of a couple of different kind of ideas into our space with our audience and our network. It was possible. So I was like really excited. And Andre's like, you bloody kidding me? What are you talking about? We've got like four businesses on the go at this stage. <laughs> it's like, how do we have time? No. Um, and so we eventually convinced him that it was a good idea. And uh, and so we're like, yeah, let's do it. He came up with the name Vino Mojo and, you know, get your mojo working. And so we went ahead and built out the site and our social profiles. And we had um, like a pre-sign-up thing happening and we had like thousands of people signed up ready to go. We had a countdown clock. Mm. This is launch date. And so two days out from launch, we're sitting there and we're super excited because like we're only 48 hours away from <laughs> launching this thing that we're so excited about it. It was the right time. We had the right network. We had the right audience. It just mm. felt really good. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay, excellent. And then we get a letter. It's a thick letter. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems quite official. <laughs> That's always a bad sign. Yeah, yeah. And we're like, well, we don't get many of these. <laughs> and so what is that? We opened it up and it was a, a, a letter from a solicitor and it was a cease and desist to not launch the site. And we were oh. like, oh my God, it was a trademark infringement notices. Like, and that's what it yeah. was. They were saying they had the trademark to Mojo, which, you know, Vino Mojo. Yeah, they sure. had the trademark to Mojo because there was a wine brand called Mojo Wines. And it was yeah. like a wine producer brand. We called a really cheap solicitor and said, you know, what should we do? And he said, change the name. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Um, and he said, but good advice really in the end because we really wanted to launch. Mm. We were two days away. It was the right time. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a time for ideas and this was the time. And so we were like, oh, God, we designed everything. The site mm. was almost ready to go live. Sure. And so we needed this um, the logo to be so similar that we could do it in a you know, in a very quick amount of time. And so we're like, okay, um, let's let's just like think about how we can change uh, like a letter or something within the name. And then when we win, um, we can change it back. And so we do what we always did and do when we have that kind of issue. We opened a couple of bottles of wine <laughs> and we sat there trying <laughs> I'm to- I'm noticing a theme. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we uh, opened a couple of bottles of wine and we sat down and we're like, all right, what, Vino Moto, Vino Modo. And after- 
um, about our second bottle. I'm like, why don't we call the Vino Mofo for the motherfuckers? And they're trying to steal our mojo. And we're like, and we laugh. We're like, you can't. That's crass. And oh my god, you can't call a company wine motherfucker. You know, like Vino stands for wine. Mofo is obviously what it stands for. So we're like, oh my god, you can't. But how funny is that? It'd be really kind of interesting to like launch with that. Have the background story. Put it up on our site as to why it's called that. Mm. Go out to media. Have a bit of a PR thing around it. And then if we win, when we win we can change it back, you know? Right. It's like just a launch kind of name. Yeah, sure. So that was it. So we decided that we'll call it Vino Mofo. Mm-hmm. Uh, we changed everything, launched, and it just took off. Was it like immediately successful? Yeah. Yeah. Like, wow. like, the day we launched, we sold more wine in that one day than we'd sold in the previous like three or four months. Wow. And it wasn't that much because we hadn't <laughs> sold that much in the previous three or four months. But it was still a significant amount of wine for us. And right. and then we're like, oh, maybe we've saturated our database now <laughs> with that one sale. On the second day, we're like, oh, we're probably not going to sell very many. Okay. And so then the third day, and it was more. And then the numbers kept growing, the customers kept um, signing up, and um, it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we were like, oh my God, you know, like, oh, just don't <laughs> stuff it up now. <laughs> like, we're on to a winner, just don't fuck it. <laughs> The newly formed Vino Mofo was a hit. Younger people in the industry just loved it because they were using a different language to the rest of the companies in the space. Justin and Andre were now finally making money and they had a few other partners in the business as well from their days at Quaff. So they split all the equity equally. At the start, we weren't very sophisticated with it. Um, you know, Back then, there wasn't as much available in terms of communities or mentoring or even, I mean, we'd read books, but there wasn't even as many of those available sure. as to, you know, learning from previous experience or people that knew the industry. So yeah. uh, we kind of fumbled our way through. Gradually through the first year into Vino Mofo, Justin and Andre started to face a really difficult problem, and it was due to their supply chain. It turns out that while some of the younger audience were loving their no BS brand, some of the bigger retailers were starting to get concerned about their own businesses, and so they started to turn pressure onto their suppliers. We had some pressure from big competitors to try and end us, basically, because we were this young, disruptive company that was starting to make some noise, and they found us a little bit annoying and potentially threatening to their own businesses. So they were starting to put some pressure on suppliers not to deal with us, uh, and you know, a lot of these suppliers were good mates of ours, you know, like... The, the, the producers, the winemakers are the real people in the industry. You know, they're, they're, you know, a lot of them come from farming backgrounds. These are real people. There's no wank with these guys. Like these, right. are, these are really honest, beautiful people. And so when big retailers that are, you know, selling, you know, maybe sometimes 70, 80, 90% of um, these wines that are produced by these amazing um, people, it's significant, you know. Mm. So when they start getting pressure to not deal with us, they have to make a really big call. Mm. Do they risk 80% of their business to help out friends or people doing interesting things or do they go the safer path? And completely understandably, quite a few would choose the safer path. So that pressure started to make it really hard for us to get wine. The pressure forced Justin and Andre to consider all their options. They didn't want to force their suppliers to fight with the bigger retailers, but they did want to scale quickly to get to the size where they had enough purchasing power to get all the wine they needed. So they started shopping the business around to their angel network for investment and also to other companies, and they ended up selling 70% of their business to The Catch Group, a Melbourne-based company that owns a collection of daily deal websites, some of which are similar to Groupon. And then we were in the kind of bigger leagues and we, mm. we had deeper pockets so we could sign bigger checks and we could buy more wine, all those things. And so it made sense to us. Uh, and that's what got the deal across the line. When the Catch Group purchased Mofo, the site already had around 30,000 active users and the team had to move across to Melbourne to be integrated into the Catch office. What was it like working for someone else? It was a change. So uh, they were good people. Like we're still friendly, very friendly with them. But it was a really interesting um, experience because they were running big companies within this space. So there were some good learnings to be had. What was different was it was no longer our baby completely, even though they were really good. They were like, the reason we've invested in you is because we can't do what you do in this space and we trust you, we've backed you, so go and run the business. So there wasn't, there was no one standing over your shoulder and so we still had complete autonomy but, mm-hmm. um, but it still, it just felt different. Mm-hmm. It just felt a little bit different. I don't know what it was in the end but it wasn't, because we were minority shareholders now, 
uh, it just felt a little bit different. So um, great experience, great learnings. Um, we did get full autonomy, but the reality is it just felt different. Working for Catch had completely changed the culture at Vino Mofo. And after a year at the company, Catch started to think about an exit. That meant they were examining the entire Catch business and then restructuring it to avoid duplication. And somewhere in the process, Justin and Andre were left wondering, what was going to happen to Vino Mofo? Uh, we chatted to um, one of the founders and said, like, what's going on? You know, we felt vulnerable, mm-hmm. you know, like what, what does this mean for us? So they're going to, you know, get rid of half our team and bring us into the main team or what does that look like? Um, and they basically said, no, 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 you're, you're fine. We don't do what you do. And, and we were tiny compared to their whole mm-hmm. business as far as revenue and team and whatever. And they're like, no, 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 you, you, um, you don't get in the way, you're fine. <laughs> you know, it was very kind of like not mean to be, but a little bit dismissive right. in the sense like, like you're just small and unimportant. Don't worry sure, about it. And sure. so we were sitting there going, oh, this is not how we wanted it to feel. And yeah. it, um, and it, the path that we'd been sold had chosen. And so then we decided we started having secret meetings in the first aid room <laughs> to, <laughs> to talk about what we could do and how we felt. And we decided that we would love to buy it back if it was possible. Mm. So we started those conversations. We approached one of the founders, Gabby, who's good guy, still good mates. Um, and uh, he was very fair. And mm. we just went, look, Gabby, um, I know that we're like, you know, not annoying and, <laughs> and we're not, you know, um, we're, we're not getting in the way of anything. But um, what we'd really like to do and what we're feeling at the moment is if um, we'd love to buy the company back. And, uh, you know, a little bit of silence. And then it's like, oh, oh, yeah, no, I can't understand that because, you know, they'd started that business, two brothers in a garage and yeah, they, sure. he could completely understand the thinking. Right, they could relate directly relate, to absolutely. your story. A couple yeah. of young entrepreneurs back then, um, you know, uh, had done it themselves, garage to this big business. He, they could relate. And uh, he's like, oh, yeah, okay, well, that's, you know, and then you could see the trader come in, <laughs> you know, the, the sales guy is like, no, no, I understand that bull, but um, oh, I'd hate to see you go. Oh, but that's that might be a little bit expensive. <laughs> and then we're, all, then we're going, um, yeah, but we've got no money. <laughs> so then the games began, you know, the bracketing of like, oh, it's going to be really expensive and oh, we've got no money and trying yep. to meet somewhere in the middle. Sure. And uh, we ended up calling um, a mate of ours who had a bunch of investors from South Australia, which was where we originally started, mm-hmm. you know, high net worth individuals and just um, who were disappointed when we got sold into um, Victoria. Right. Uh, uh, and would have invested in us if we'd needed the money apparently mm-hmm. so then we called him and he said look give me give me an hour and um and he came called back within that time frame and said yep i've got the money and with that the deal was done and coming up after the break vino mofo finds its own feet once again This is Building a Unicorn. I'm Christopher Lawson. On June 30, 2013, Vino Mofo officially became its own company again. And for Justin and Andre, this was really the beginning of a new era. The chance to start again and gain some autonomy back. It was so exciting. Yeah. It was so exciting. It was so funny because when we did the, um, the first part of the transfer, we were um, uh, transfer over, you know, we'd, we'd done the deal, but we were still working within their offices, waiting mm-hmm. to find our own offices back somewhere closer sure. to Melbourne. <laughs> and, you know, they were lovely, like still really good match with a lot of their team. Uh, but it was just a weird, you know, kind of moment, like yep. crossover period. And then finally we found this place in Richmond, which is, you know, super in the suburbs of Melbourne, close to where I lived. And uh, we got this like cool warehouse style kind of smaller um, office and brought our 13 people which we had into that office space and uh, the vibe and the feeling was incredible and you know it, the 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 deal crossed over at like yeah June 30 July 1st so mm. any any transactions up to midnight on June 30 was um was theirs and anything after midnight was ours and so i remember getting into this office and like uh, we were all sitting on computers in different locations like yeah. refreshing to see the orders come through because <laughs> we had like no money because we gave it all back mm. and so we were starting with bank balance zero and yeah. so we needed transactions yeah. to start happening we we're like what if it doesn't happen we've got an <laughs> office now we've got 13 staff we've got uh, and so we were refreshing and then it was like 12, 
it was like nothing, like 1201, nothing, 1202, bang. And we had our first order. It was like Amazing. $232 and we like standing up yelling and celebrating going, we're back, baby. <laughs> and uh, and then we all realized that we need another 20 grand to pay wages by next Thursday. <laughs> a bit of a way to go. But it was so, it was so good. And yeah. from that period, like the energy was back for everyone. Mm. Our audience um, that had thought some part of that audience had gone, oh, they're big now, they don't need us. They all returned. And all of a sudden, we were super fast growing again. And that period from 2013, next few years were incredible. The new independent company grew rapidly, becoming one of Australia's fastest growing startups. And by 2016, had more than 400,000 members, 110 staff, and was bringing in revenue of close to 50 million Australian dollars every year. Around the middle of 2016, the company started to move into the global space, first by heading to New Zealand and then eventually Singapore. You know, we were looking at Singapore or Hong Kong, comparing those markets, and Singapore made a lot of sense. It was in desperate need of a player like us in the market. Um, There was too many middlemen, people were paying way too much for wine, too many people dipping their hands in. What are some of the challenges that you had to think about when you start rolling your business out into another country? So many. One of the things I've kind of learned is uh, we thought we had an idea of what the offering would be. You know, mm. we had an idea of what it should be when we went in, and we've had to adapt that to each of the mm. markets because they're very different. You know, like it can you can go over there, you can experience it, you can say this is the right model for that industry or this space, that country. But the reality is, you've got to launch and learn. Mm. Um, there's 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 things that you never expect <laughs> mm. that come up, and you know what we thought was our business was actually not our business so um we thought the the model which is like premium to super premium wine curated you know to our you know the top five percent the wines that we love sure and then we buy deeper than anyone because mm-hmm. of that super focus which means the prices are better mm-hmm. and so and then the culture around the business which is no bow ties no bs but super passionate about wine that mm-hmm. was our thing yep. so we're like going to a new market like new zealand um, you go to the local producer, you, you basically say, what's that market buying? Um, they're in that space, like premium, super premium, um, and it's mostly Kiwi wines. And so we'll go into that, we'll go curate it, pick our top 5%, go super deep, buy more than anyone, which is our model, yep. um, and sell at prices that the market's never seen before. Hmm. We've soon realized that that didn't work in New Zealand. What we actually needed to do was focus on what we do well, um, because... New Zealanders like buying New Zealand wine, but generally from New Zealand <laughs> retailers, <laughs> not necessarily Australian sure, guys. Sure. And so we quickly realized to focus on what we do well, which is Australian wine and um, unique kind of interesting wines from all around the world that mm-hmm. aren't seen in these countries very often. These days, Vino Mofo has sorted out some of the challenges with growing into global markets, and they're now eyeing off the US something they've talked about for many years, but perhaps 2019 will be the time. You know, I've done a lot of time there, um, researched the market a lot, started to build out the networking and done the licensing. So we're we're there, we're getting very close um, to be able to be ready. So it's just choosing when. What I would have originally done (laughs) would have been bring our model and try and build out the networks within, you know, the American Mm. industry. Um, And now what we're kind of leaning towards is similar to New Zealand where we kind of do what we do really well. You know, sure. there's you know, 65,000 Aussies in greater LA area, expats. There's a whole bunch of them all over America. So even that as an audience is a great kind of market to target first. Mm. And then the market within America that is drinking Australian wine is also very interesting. At what point, like when you're growing this team, uh, did you start to realize that your skills as a leader needed to evolve to be able to fit like a bigger organization or did that was that just a gradual I think, process I think it was a, a gradual process because it the, the skills you need as a leader definitely change over time mm. um, I think very quickly you realize that uh, managing people and leading people is a very very important part of that skill set and you know when you're when you're starting as a young entrepreneur and you've got, you know, just you, just yourselves or a couple of people, it's all about, you know, being all things in the face and also, you know, you're coding or you're writing copy or you're doing the social and you're do, like, you're just, I'm, I was doing the marketing up until 2013 along with all my wow. other roles mm. until I employed, thankfully, <laughs> um, Kip, who's still with the team as head of marketing today. And, um, and uh, that was, I think, 2013, 2014. So up until then, and we were a significant business, mm. I was 
I was the only guy doing marketing in the business. So you, yeah. and that was a skill set that I had to have up until that point. And mm. then now I'm still fascinated by it. And I, we still have really deep conversations, but it's not my area. Sure. So then you can go and focus on other areas. And I think the more time gets taken up with different things as you grow, you know, the, the media side gets bigger, the bigger you get, the, um, the people piece gets much, much, much bigger. The strategy piece gets much bigger. The uh, understanding raising funds and board, you know, meetings right. and process and wow, you know, yeah. it just changes so much. And I, I think um, traditionally, you know, you'll have a, a CEO or leaders that kind of fit into a certain size company. But when it's your own and you're growing with it or you're part of the original team that is scaled, you get to experience all those different levels. And it, and it is quite fascinating and challenging and scary and exciting and all the things that, um, all, you know, all the emotions that you can possibly imagine because, you know, sometimes you, you know, everyone has imposter syndrome at different stages, different levels within their lives and you've got to grow. And the only way to do that is to step the hell out of your comfort zone. Mm. And, you know, and that's a constant thing. And, I think people, when they're starting, look at people that have had a longer journey and like a, and are seen to be a very successful entrepreneur or business leader, think it gets easier. It actually doesn't. It gets a lot harder. <laughs> and so if, if anyone is thinking that, oh, just I'll get to this size, I'll get to this many people, I'll get to this number of employees, I'll get to this many countries, I'll get to this level of whatever their idea of success is, and then it will be easy. It's just not. It's just <laughs> not. It's just like a constant evolution of just becoming an, an, an even bigger, harder challenge. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, it's obviously incredibly rewarding or you yeah. wouldn't be doing it and it's super exciting and I love it. But there's not a lot of comfort mm. zones. You know, there's just, you're never truly, truly comfortable if you're growing. There's p- probably plenty of people sit at home like having this this idea of like when they start their journey as an entrepreneur like if only I can reach this point then all of my stress goes away <laughs> yeah exactly and I, I think probably most people think that uh, think that way and it's, and it's just not the case and uh, I think that uh, the, the more time I spend in it the more comfortable I get with risk and that's what happens because of the experience so I you know the things that would have bothered me five years ago I don't even think about now you know yeah. I can sleep very easily at night with a hundred things all going wrong you know or you know a hundred <laughs> things up in the air whereas it probably two things would have kept me awake for three nights in a row when we started <laughs> um, so I think you get more comfortable with sure. the risk and the responsibility but the thought that you don't have to step out of your comfort zone and it's constantly or regularly mm. scary it's false to do that next level especially if you're in a fast growing company that's evolving and changing and building and you haven't been at that level before there's a lot to learn Andre actually left Vino Mofo in 2018 handing over the CEO title to Justin although he's still involved on the board and is still a major shareholder and in many ways this is a business inherently linked with family so it may not be surprising to know that Justin's mum is also deeply involved in the business In fact, for a long time she did all of the accounts without charging them a cent. So once the company was doing well, Justin really wanted to repay her. My main driver in my life is my family to look after them, make sure that they don't have to worry about the things that I worried about as a kid and and went through. And so, you know, the first thing I did when I uh, had a little bit of money out of the business was I paid mum's mortgage off because I didn't want her to have a mortgage for the rest of her life, you know. That's what drives me. And then we actually started doing really well and Vino started taking off. I remember calling her and saying, "Um, hey, mum, got a question for you. She's like, yeah. And I'm like, how much notice do you have to give to your other job? And... um, It was one of those really beautiful conversations that meant a lot to me. And I didn't realise how much it meant to her until later. She told me that day that when um, she got that call and when we said goodbye and she was really excited um, and uh, she hung up the phone and she danced in the kitchen, you know, and she was just so happy to be able to come and work for her boys. Um, so it was one of those really lovely moments and uh, and that's why. (laughs) One of the first things I ever wanted to do was look after her. With everything that you've achieved now, when you look back at the journey that you've had, what do you feel? Uh, I think I'm. I feel proud of of the things that I've achieved. Mm. I I feel like we've still got so much to achieve. Uh, it's one of those things that, as most entrepreneurs do, you're always looking at the next thing. I've, I feel a little bit of regret around not 
appreciating the wins along mm-hmm. the journey and uh, it's easy to say now and I probably still do it a little bit because I'm always <laughs> looking what's next but uh, sure. there were times when we you know big significant things that happened mm. where we should have probably kind of just taken a moment and gone like this is pretty cool mm-hmm. you know like this is what's happening now is pretty cool doing this kind of deal is huge building a company like this is huge employing your first person is huge like all those things momentous moments and we didn't probably take the time that we could have to Mm. appreciate so a little bit of regret a little bit proud a little bit uh i don't know you know it's um thankful like i'm really thankful that i've had the opportunity you know you can you can prepare a lot and you can dream a lot and you can you can you know have vision boards and goals and all those things that i think are super important but there's also a little bit of luck involved in Mm. in these things and to pretend there isn't is is um is silly and sure. so uh, we've been incredibly lucky so I'd, I'd like you know i'd think that i'm very thankful for where i am and the opportunities that i have um mm-hmm. and the little moments that have been lucky along the way and mm-hmm. i'm also thankful for the moments that haven't been to be honest because i've learned a lot so i don't know thankful proud little bits of regret along the way but super excited about what we have now and then what we can do with it going forward what's the biggest thing that you've learned on your journey the biggest thing I've learned is that all the good stuff is outside of your comfort zone, probably. And I know that sounds like a motivational speaker, but it actually is true. All those things that were the scariest for me to do have probably been the most rewarding. Taking the risks, daring to dream that this stuff was possible, you know, daring to put down on my vision board or on my goals that I wanted to achieve certain things that have now become true. Um, Daring to get in front of the camera and do the first wine tasting that I felt extremely uncomfortable (laughs) with, Um, you know. I think so probably, uh, probably, it continues today like those, those things that I go oh god that doesn't feel good <laughs> that doesn't that feels a little bit scary I'm a bit fearful about talking about this or talking about that or getting up on that stage or I think they're the most rewarding so probably the, the biggest lesson has been to yeah feel the fear and just do it anyway thanks a lot to Justin and the team at Mofo. Building a Unicorn is a Lawson Media production. You can find out more about the show or get episode transcripts at our website, buildingaunicorn.com. This episode was hosted and scripted by me, Christopher Lawson, with research by Patrick Laverick. Our theme music is by Nick Buchanan, with other music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Mixing and editing by James Parkinson, and our artwork is by Andrew Millist. And if you enjoyed the episode, make sure you share it with all your friends. And if you've got any ideas for future guests, or perhaps you want to advertise on the show, send us your feedback to unicorn at lawson.media. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Build a Unicorn. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Listener.